Today we are talking with Brett Carpenter from um, Oklahoma University, not the University of Oklahoma. Oh, no, it Univers- is, no, it is University o- of Oklahoma, Oklahoma but OU. <laughs> See, this is this is why we cut. We do a lot of post editing. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun, live. Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. Um, so it turns out that recording in front of a live audience is a little bit more difficult than i imagined it was fun <laughs> it was fun yeah so uh so this episode uh we it was a special episode we recorded live at the aaas 2019 meeting which was here in dc uh earlier this year and i don't think we messed up too much it was no. <laughs> hopefully uh, not hopefully not hopefully not but that's that's what cutting together is for um, but yeah, so we interviewed Brett, and without further ado, let's hear from him. All right, so uh, I did my graduate work at Penn State University um, in basically rock mechanics and fault structure. Uh, it's a fancy way that? of saying <laughs> I like to look at faults in the field and then try to determine if they're going to have an earthquake or not. Okay. So what, what can I tell from the geologic record? For an earthquake, what can I look for? Um, I then went and spent three and a half years in Rome, Italy at INGV, which is their USGS, uh, studying faults in the Apennine Mountains, uh, and then landed at uh, University of Oklahoma as an assistant professor of structural geology. Uh, So a lot of what I study um, is both laboratory and field-based. So I'll go out in the field, try to find faults, study the structure of those faults, what do they look like, how do they intersect each other, and then try to collect fault rocks to study in the lab. Oh, I can't. I'm from rural PA. I can't imagine going from rural PA to Rome to Oklahoma. Yeah, that is quite a kind of a a transition. I went from Chicago to Thailand to North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) I figure that's that's adequate. I went from like PA to Tennessee to DC, so not quite the same, but... So to start out in the field, how do you find a fault, or how do you know where to go? Uh, so that, and what does it look like? Like, will be, yeah, would I be a, able to know? What does a fault look like? <laughs> so, some of the best places to look for faults are road cuts, where civic authorities have given you nice, fresh faces to look at. Oh. Um, and so, one of the main things we look for in faults are just displaced geologic bodies. So, displaced sedimentary layers, um, displaced. Uh, let's say, intrusions like dikes or sills. So anything that can give us relative motion between two sides of a fault. So what's a dike and a sill, or what does it look like? Like if I went out and I was looking at these row cuts, what would I kind of see? So a, a dike is a vertically propagating upward um, igneous intrusion. In Oklahoma, they're mafic, so they're black. So it, a sill is horizontal and will kind of step up horizontally, uh, made of the same material. And so you're, you're basically just looking for like these alterations in this rock face, essentially, like these yeah. different like things that just look out of the ordinary in these different ways. Uh, yeah, uh, faults are definitely out of the ordinary. <laughs> they, they, like I said, they offset various things, um, and they also have a bunch of different types of rocks associated with them. The, the rocks around a fault are really beat up, and so that's one thing we look for as well um, okay. when we look for faults. Have you ever done this type of stuff where you're just on the side of the highway and there are like people blowing by in their cars thinking, like, what the heck's happening? Or have you ever had any interesting interactions with folks who are just wondering, like, what you're doing? Uh, so 
uh, not in the particular fault studies, but I also teach structural geology at the university. And we go out in a field trip, and every time someone that from the university goes by, they honk. Um, <laughs> I've also had a gentleman from Indiana stop by, and he carried a piece of phosphoriferous limestone all the way from Indiana as he was going to Texas for the winter and stopped and said, I brought this for you guys so you would have this sample. That was probably about the strangest incident I've had. Wait, how did he know who you were or where you were? Or he was... Well, the, the vehicles we have out uh, there have OU on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he every winter he would go drive by and catch somebody in the field. And so the year I was out, he just decided to bring a piece of limestone from Indiana and dropped it off. I was like, okay, thank you. You, you have fans. Yep. <laughs> Man, so I want I want fans. Like, I have a fan. You have a fan? Like a podcast fan. Yeah, a That's podcast exciting. fan. So this woman that, uh, one of the uh, consultants who works here, she was listening to the podcast with her son, and he's a huge fan. Oh, no, you told me about yeah, this. Yeah, so it's exciting. I uh, I was actually just talking to folks this weekend. I was at a workshop, and people, I've had this before, people can now recognize me by my voice. Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. So I guess that counts. Now, how do you... What does that actually look like in the field? Like when you're out there drilling, like how does this happen? I mean, is it like it's like ice cores, like that type of thing? You have these big giant um, machineries. Like what does that actually look like? So it really depends on the project. Um, I was involved with a project on the San Andreas and a project in New Zealand on the Alpine Fault. And the, the drill rig on the Alpine Fault was a literal a little mineral exploration rig. So the same size of a drill rig that would drill a water well. Mm, um, okay. So, you know, very small. Uh, the San Andreas rake was a typical uh, oil industry drilling. So it was enormous with all the various parts that you need for industry drilling. So I've seen both ends of the spectrum. Uh, a drivable rig and a rig that takes, I think it was 40 tractor trailers to move site to site. How do you know where to drill? <laughs> Do you have like a divining rod? Like a... <laughs> a, a divining rod would be nice. Um, so typically, so how SafeOd was chosen was through 20-plus years of characterization of the site. Um, and then we chose a spot far enough away from the fault, it, and then we aimed for it. And we knew we crossed the fault because we crossed from one geologic formation into the other. Mm. And that was the only way we knew we crossed it initially. Uh, then we put casing in that borehole. And the fault sheared the casing and told us exactly where it was. Oh. Um, other faults, you have to do a lot of on-site characterization. Um, I'm lucky right now in Oklahoma. Um, I'm studying a specific area where I can see the fault on the surface. So actually going and characterizing it is a bit easy because I can stand on it. <laughs> um, the ones you can stand on, like this one, like how big? Like what? If we were to look at it, what would we actually be looking at, looking for? Um, so this particular fault... Um, is actually just a series of fractures that get really, really close to where you have pulverized rock in the middle. So as you go away from the center of the structure, the number of fractures decreases, and then as you get to the middle of it, the damage is the highest you have pulverized rock. In this particular fault, we've traced for about seven kilometers in southern Oklahoma. So what are you using? Like what type of machines, or is, is there a machine? Is it just so a lot of the machines that I've used are kind of purpose-built, deformation machines they're not you you can't go into walmart or even some of the the companies that sell rock testing machines and buy these they're prototypes kind of self-built 
Um, there's some machines um, from a company, uh, various companies, uh, GCTS, MTS. These are just acronyms, but they make machines that industry uses to test cores. So you, a lot of scientific labs will start with some of those machines, but then we retrofit it with the stuff that we want to measure in terms of deformation because in terms of faulting, we care about a, few, a little bit different type of data than typical industry applications. So run us through just like one of your, like one of these things you've created or retrofitted, like physically, like you put these cores or part of the cores into this thing. What does it do? Like what, what does this like, cause you say like hydraulic fluid. So I assume there's a lot of pressing or something oh, going yeah, on. Yeah. So like, what does this look like? So these rigs typically have uh, one or two hydraulic pistons. Um, and then they have a chamber where you, where you will put the sample. Um, we put a jacketing around the sample of either copper or shrink tube to keep it separated. Um, we can we then basically close this vessel, fill it with oil, and heat it to the conditions that we want to. Um, we can then pump water into the fluid into the sample as well, and then we just deform it. So we either deform it to find out its strength and yielding behavior, or if or we put it in and basically slide one piece against another to determine the friction behavior. What do the rocks do when you're you push it or you know you're you're pressurizing it obviously and, and yeah. doing all, what what do they do do they like do they pulverize them do they end up I, I don't know what do they look like at the so, end when you take it all out so it really depends on rock type a lot on a lot of cases um, you know let's say granite in the shallow crust that is very brittle that tends to just break and pulverize you take calcite so like a limestone at mid crustal conditions. That behaves much more ductily, so much more like silly putty. Um, oh. I mean, it's a rigid silly putty, but much more like <laughs> silly putty. Silly putty. <laughs> so, uh, so it just depends on rock type, and that's one of the reasons why we do this field mapping and drilling is to determine what rock types are in play for particular faults. Has anything ever really like you put something into, so to say, like when you're when you're doing more like the pulverizing or like the not necessarily one against the other, but more of the um, um, pushing them to, like, crushing them in many ways. Have you ever really been surprised by something? Like, something hasn't behaved the way you thought it would, or maybe, I mean, hopefully not, but, like, something did something to one of your machines or anything like that? I would say one of my most surprising results in, is we, we were testing a piece of chert, um, which is microcrystalline quartz. So it's, it's, very, it's very strong. And we knew it was very strong, but we didn't know how strong. We actually deformed our machine trying to break the quartz. <laughs> um, and there were little pieces of the quartz. Uh, so we do our best to uh, put up shields and all around these. Um, but you always have people who like to get in and try to look or take a selfie with the deformation. Um, and so a small piece of quartz, or uh, the shirt actually broke off, shot out of the machine, and actually caused a little bit of a cut on a person. What? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it was just a little scratch, but it was just so hard. I mean, Shirt is used for arrowheads for a reason, um, and in this oh, wow. case, that person found out that reason in the experiment. So, so people take selfies with that. Yes, um, I am not a big fan of people taking a selfie in front of a machine that's at high pressure and temperature. Um, I prefer to. You can take a selfie in front of it when it's not doing anything. That's fine, but not during the experiment. So. Yeah, that's crazy. When you're drilling into these faults, is there any – I'm a biologist by training, so I obviously don't know this. Is there any, like, concern about 
messing with like the structural integrity of these areas because you're literally removing part from an already oh, or like that field. you could set something off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it, from a societal side, there is a concern for some very good reasons. Um, I'm from Oklahoma. Those reasons are fairly self-evident when you mess around with the state of stress around a fault. But drilling a four-inch hole through the San Andreas Fault, which is hundreds of kilometers long, no, we're not. You know, what, we would be worried if we increased the pore pressure substantially. But the mud weight in the borehole was just meant to keep the borehole open, not to do, let's say, not to fracture into the rock. Yeah. So I guess, I guess it's a no that people shouldn't, we shouldn't be concerned no. about. Yeah. Don't be concerned. But Don't be concerned, I, Shane. I yeah, but I know like people. I mean, might be even though the best evidence says you're like drilling into something. It's like, oh, this is a fault. It might crack open. And right. But we should not be concerned. We should not be concerned. All right. Well, but uh, it kind of makes me wonder, though. I wonder what, so when he's drilling, and especially when he's pulling up cores and stuff, I wonder what it's like to be like in that space or, or in that room. Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty crazy. I was just going to ask then about, I mean, you, you said about the cores, there's like a mass rush after you, you bring it up, you open it up. Um, so you're all in this little trailer. Everyone's like got their. I don't know what do, what do they have their they, they have their in, they have their stuff out so they can take a sample. How long do you have to take the sample? I, I mean, uh, what, yeah. what 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 occurs there? So and how long does that all take? I'll, I'll be honest, as a as a part of the team that was responsible for basically curating the core, there are some samples like if we want to sample the fluids in the core that are taken immediately, so there's no degradation. You basically mm. take a sample, put it under vacuum to pull the water out. But the primary goal of the people on site uh, was to get the core cleaned. We had a, a log, a sensor logger that would scan for geophysics and take a high resolution, high resolution picture of the core. So we did that, and then our goal was to basically get it from on deck to basically shrunk wrap and sealed in as little time possible. So when you had all these scientists in in the room getting in our way, um, <laughs> it, it was a bit. You know, th- there were points where I was shooing principal investigators and other scientists out of the room, saying, "This is great, but if we let this dry out, you're going to be mad at us later." So let's wait. So what is? It? So it has to be wet. What we, we, we want to keep it as damp as possible to keep all the formation fluid that's in it um, to help hold it together. Um, as the core dries out, it desiccates and crumbles. Um, so in a fault zone, the rock is basically just rubble. And in a lot of cases, the only thing holding it together is the fluid that's there. Mm. It's the only cohesive force there. And so if it dries out, then it... So our goal was to process it as quickly as possible without disturbing it, take whatever immediate time-sensitive sample we had, but then to get it basically shrunk wrap and sealed so that it could be properly analyzed later. Um, And so when we had these exciting cores come up, there was always a competition between excitement and get the heck out of my way um i need to curate this core properly i love this i love this image of him like literally having to kick people out of this tiny little trailer uh because they're just so excited to see like what's in these cores like scientists I... scientist excitement <laughs> right there but um yeah so we... <laughs> and you know i kind of now he explained like what they actually are finding in there yeah what they're cores. actually so excited yeah. about yeah what we think about from the history of the rocks at the sand, where we sampled it, there's evidence that there were past earthquakes in that core. We found evidence of earthquakes coming mm. through there. 
So that breaks up the rock. It produces what we call fault gouge. Can you is... say like that happened in this t- year? No, no. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we, we would like to, but no. Okay. But so that it forms this powdered rock called fault gouge. Any uh, chemist will tell you, increased surface area, you increase the chemical reaction rate. And so in this case, you've got basically quartz and feldspar-dominated rocks from the Pacific Plate, and you've got this serpentine, which is magnesium-rich. So you've got magnesium-rich fluids coming off the serpentine, interacting with these quartz and feldspar-rich rocks, forming this weak clay called saponite. And so that reaction is fairly aggressive, um, and it's something that we tend not to see at the surface because saponite is so easily weatherable at the surface that if you walked up to an outcrop, it likely wouldn't be there. So it was just something that we couldn't tell from the surface exposures. And so the saponite, if I'm saying it correctly, um, so how does, that, how does that factor into earthquakes? So saponite uh, in two ways. Um, one, so when we talk about faults, we talk about what is the fault strength. So what is its resistance to, to shear, to slip? Um, to move. To move. Yep. Okay. What is its resistance? And we use friction, much like friction is talked about in other areas, to describe that. And so saponite is very frictionally weak. Um, we also talk about the fault seismic stability, and that is the likelihood that once slip has begun to accelerate, will that slip arrest, or will that slip uh, accelerate into an earthquake? And as far as we can tell, that is a material property about the materials in the fault. And so saponite is both weak and seismically stable, which explains why the fault creeps. So it doesn't, you don't have big earthquakes where we sample it. Um, they're creeping. They're just yeah, small just kind of... steady sliding kind of past itself. Um, they're, they're great pictures from... Uh, creep was basically discovered not far from where we did it at the La Cienega Winery in California, just offsetting the basement wall they had to fix every year. Oh. You could, Wikipedia's got a good page on that. Students don't use Wikipedia as a source. So <laughs> <laughs> but, so. but, but the areas where you have um, the saponite, where you have the creep, I mean, so if you don't have the saponite, you're more likely then to get a like a big earthquake happen rather than the creep, or not necessarily? I don't know. Uh, that, that, that's what we think. Um, oh. So now where the Seifad borehole currently sits is about actually 100 meters above a magnitude 2 earthquake that happens every two years. And part of a goal, we just had an earthscope synthesis workshop to talk about Seifad and get ready for this meeting, would be to go back and to sample that. And then we can directly say, okay, creep here, earthquakes here, this is why. That's um, really cool. Just to the south of the site in uh, Parkfield, um, they had a two, uh, in 2004, they had a magnitude 6 earthquake. So we, we think the fault structure is quite a bit different there. But, you know, safe odd cost in the neighborhood of $30 million, So <laughs> there's just not that money lying around to go throw four-inch boreholes everywhere across the fault. So you have to do some surface mapping to interpret the fault structure. Sure. Have you ever seen the movie San Andreas? I have seen the movie San Andreas. Um, what did you think of it? For, the, for those of you who aren't aware, San Andreas is a... It's like the day after tomorrow of earthquakes. Yep. I never saw it. It's not um, good. I heard it was not good. That's so, I like Dwayne Johnson, but it's not good. My, my actual favorite way to watch that, there's a, a famous scientist from the USGS. There's a version of it where basically she live-tweeted it during it, right. and the tweets show up on the screen. 
Um, was this like Susan? A, Lucy Jones? I can't remember. Or, oh, or Susan. Yeah. Oh, Susan. Matter, Anyways. But yeah. but, um, oh, so it's like but a it like pop-up video? But it was like a real-time fact check of the oven <laughs> as it was going through. And that's my favorite version to watch. That's the version that I have students watch. Um, so don't get me wrong. The, there are parts of the San Andreas, let's say the southern San Andreas, that if you look at probabilistic hazard forecasting are due for an earthquake. Um, of magnitude 6 to 7. Um, the Bay region is probably due for a 6 to 7 again. And by due, I mean 60% chance in the next 30 years. That's what, when we talk about probabilistic forecasting, that's what we think about um, in terms of earthquakes. Yeah. So the actual movie San Andreas, um, I'm a bit skeptical that the entire San Andreas could break all at once. <laughs> and if it did, I'm even more skeptical that it would cause a tsunami. It's just not that type of fault. I love this phrase, like, not that type of fault. Like, I wonder if there's a fault where it could, like, trigger a tsunami. Maybe yeah, the... I mean, that's how tsunami is triggered. <laughs> but not not the uh, San Andreas made for TV, or I guess not made for TV. I guess, I guess that's just not how that fault kind of works. By there's different types. Dwayne The Rock. The Rock Johnson. Johnson. <laughs> uh, but but uh, from these cores, uh, no tsunami triggered, but they did actually uh, find some really cool stuff. So we cored the fault. We had that beautiful core in the lab. Everybody was patting themselves on the back, you know, mission accomplished. But what it was at, what happened after that was, well, we wanted to put casing in the borehole. So to do that, you have to make it wider. So they were going through, after coring it, opening up the borehole. And when you do that, you get cuttings that come out. Now, at the time, we knew that it would be, you know, as a PhD student, I have a finite amount of time to complete my degree. Um, but I knew that at that point in time that it would be a process for the core to get distributed around to different labs. So I made a deal with the project PIs that while they were opening the, the fault zones that I would collect cuttings for myself and the project. And so that night that that happened was the celebratory project dinner. Um, so I stayed on site. It was a rainy night. And because there was already a borehole there, this happened very fast. So basically over an hour I was just collecting cuttings in these sieve trays as fast as I could off the, the shaker table. So I took I took mine back to, to Penn State, ran some experiments, and so actually one of my most cited papers is from that evening. While <laughs> everyone was having dinner, I was... Luckily, the, the shaker tables were covered, so I wasn't standing in the pouring rain, but it, it was not a nice evening, let's say. And it was 2 in the morning or so. I had to look back at the times. The, but, uh, the joys of field work. Yes. We were... Uh... Uh, I was talking with Brett beforehand about um, about Penn State. I'm from that area, uh, and I also know a lot, like a decent amount about like Marcella's show. Uh, and so I just wanted to kind of get a little bit of background on his timing, whether or not like he was there when Marcella's show was discovered or whatever else. Uh, so we chatted a little bit about that. I was at Penn State. Uh, to be honest, first as a master's student, I thought I was going to teach high school air science and physics, and wanted a degree, wanted a uh, master's in content instead of education. So I went. Um, but kind of fell in love with the academic research lifestyle and haven't left since. So the Marcellus as a unit um, has been known about for a long time. The Marcellus as an economically viable unit has only been known about since, or really looked at seriously since the early 2000s. And I was there during that time, um, and Terry Engelder, who's kind of one half of the group that gets credit for discovering the economic viability of it, um, was actually on my master's committee. So mm-hmm. I was there during that phase. 
and actually got to see and smell some of the Marcellus in one of our rock prep rooms at Penn State. What does, so, um, like, natural gas doesn't have an odor. Like, what does the Marcellus shell smell like? Uh, but there are other rotting organisms <laughs> that do have an odor. And um, so it's a bit hard to describe with that. But you, you know it when you smell it. <laughs> so from your science days, uh, do you remember, like, did you ever have any really terribly smelling things that you ever had to work with? I know you were more on the chemical side. I mean, so. chemicals don't really, some of them smell kind of good, but they're bad for you. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but you know what I do remember in high school? Oh, dissecting the frogs at formaldehyde. Oh, formaldehyde's terrible. Oh my God. I almost like threw up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, uh, being a herpetologist working with frogs, uh, the formaldehyde, the pickled ones are, we call them pickled, uh, are really gross, but I uh, I teach this class every summer, and frogs love habitats that are just gross, like low oxygen bogs and just things that smell terrible. My students hate me so much by the end Ugh. of it, but it's where you find the best stuff. What's your favorite fault? Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that without angering people. Um, well, I guess I guess if my favorite drilling location, okay, is New Zealand. So I spent almost, I guess, one day shy of six months on two different trips in New Zealand. So taking my visitor visa up to the last day each time for two different projects drilling in New Zealand. And it was the South Island of the West Coast. Just a beautiful area. So what's that field site like? Why do you love it so much? Yeah, you're uh, like in Middle Earth. I, I was going to say, <laughs> picture Middle Earth. Yeah. And that, that's about what the field site looks like. So... Did you camp there? Did you, like, um, what's, there, what's your typical kind so of, like, the, your months out there like? Well, the town we were in is called Fadarawa. It's a sleepy little town, a little bit bigger than Parkfield. Um, but they they do a lot of tourism, so they have cabins and a hotel, and so we stayed there. Um, but on my first trip, um, it was a very shoestring budget. Uh, this was where we had the small rig, the water drilling mm-hmm. rig. But the students, and I was a student at the time, were responsible for site security. And that meant that you camped on site overnight and were, I don't know, supposed to scare people away. That, that, that the whole security part wasn't very well defined. But it was basically site security was two students sleeping in a tent on the site overnight during drilling operations. So essentially it was like so they didn't have to pay for you. Um, yeah. I mean, I, we did, were, did, you, did you have to see, uh, scare anyone away? Were they like? Um, so we actually had hunters come up to us one night while I was there. And they were just curious. One thing about all drilling projects that is really, you actually, if you do it right, you become part of the community. And so the community knows exactly what's going on and why. Whether you're in Parkfield or the west coast of New Zealand or in Oklahoma, you really have to get community buy-in and explain things and keep them up to date for it to be successful. Um, I mean, in in Fadaroa, we tripled their population when we had the drilling project, Mm -hmm. just by all the scientists coming in. I don't know if I ever had, like when I was uh, doing field work, I don't know if I ever had any experiences where I got um, like any bad experience with landowners or anything, but a lot of our work was done at night. And so I was always under, uh, like I was always worried that under the cover of darkness, that yeah. we'd be like out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in like rural Pennsylvania or rural Tennessee, and like no one knows Some you're out there. Some flashlight shine in your face, like what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But still here, so we're all good. In scientific drilling, things go wrong all the time. Um, the SAFOD project, although I, yeah, if, if you would have come to my talk yesterday, you would have heard you know, rainbows and sunshine and how great <laughs> it was. Um, we, we lost several boreholes during that where 
we, you know, basically got stuck in the borehole, had to twist off the pipe and come back out. Um, some of the New Zealand drilling projects didn't go uh, well all the way to completion. So you, you have this, you, you put all this work in, you're out there, you're basically beating your head against the wall, and then the wall punches back hard. <laughs> um, and so part of it is, you know, the first time it happens, it's a real downer. Every time it happens, it's a real downer. But you have to, you know, scientific drilling is high risk, high reward. And so once you understand that, you kind of get used to it. Other times I've taken students out to a field site and basically been asked to leave by the landowner. Um, so kind of hard to teach students structural geology when the landowner's implying that, I mean, it is Oklahoma, that they would prefer you not to be on their property. So, Have you, uh, like, have you ever actually been, like, scared or, uh, like, uh, yeah, I guess, like, scared for your students or yourself? Or? Um, I would say the only time I've actually been scared was myself. Um, I was out collecting samples in California. Um, full disclosure, I was in a place I knew I shouldn't be in. Um, <laughs> but the fault was right on the other side of the fence. So I jumped it. And I had a my rock hammer and a bag, and I just scooped as much as I could as quick as I could. The landowner came out and fired off a shot just up in the air. And I, I, I waved to him, hopped back over the fence. Um, I, I, I got my sample, though. So that was, but I, I knew I shouldn't have been there, but I took a calculated risk. That's, that, yeah, that sounds like the, 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 the true scientist, as yeah. it were. <laughs> See, that's like, that's my nightmare. Being chased at, or being shot at, I guess. Or yeah, I mean, like, well, yeah, I guess most people <laughs> that would be their nightmare too. But I mean, it's I don't know. It's I feel like it's like a real thing that I could actually relate Happen. to. Yeah, I think the most I ever got to happen was like I got yelled at by someone for stepping on their property. But I get yelled at every day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the mean streets of DC. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun Live. Thank you so much to. I guess us. Us, yeah. But Shane did most of the work on this one, I will oh, say. You. I just showed up for the interview. <laughs> um, I and, couldn't do it without you, Nancy. Yeah, and of course, thanks to Brett for sharing his work with us. Um, and of course, thanks to AAAS for providing a space and equipment for us to record at their 2019 annual meeting here in D.C. Yeah, so this podcast was produced by Nancy and me and mixed by Kayla Surrey. We would love to hear your thoughts. As always on this podcast, please rate and review us. Uh, Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time. 